Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's podcast, Cathy Sheridan hears about the life of Irish drag queens, the Irish lesbian scene and the new LGBTQ plus focused music and arts festival Love Sensation. Stay tuned for that conversation while she'll be talking to festival organiser Cormac Cashman, editor of GCN magazine Lisa Connell and drag queen extraordinaire Victoria Secret. Also in today's show, Jennifer Ryan talks to Rachel Del Loesch-Williams, who has written a book about her relationship with the fake German heiress Anna Sorokin, or Anna Delvey as she was known during the time she spent defrauding banks and New York hotels. First though, Tanya Sweeney is here for a chat. Delighted to be joined now by Tanya Sweeney. So Tanya, we're going to be talking about your very good column later on. But first of all, the biggest news that happened this week uh, (laughs) was the final of Love Island. And, well, a woman didn't win it. But really, she did really win it. She won all of her hearts. Maura Higgins from Ballymahan. Ballymahan in Longford. Right. Mm -hmm. You're a Maura fan. I am a massive Maura fan. I really am. I, I want us to be friends. She'll probably not be into that, but sure. Well, you know, a woman can Maura, dream. <laughs> if you're listening, Maura, and you don't have enough friends, Tanya would like to... <laughs> Squad goals, seriously. <laughs> no, she, I mean, this. I think this was why she was so popular. You know, she, she was the... The, you know, the keeper of girl go code in, in Love Island, you know, where, well, the guys were being, I kind of noticed that all the conversations in Love Island were basically the women going to men, you know, the, the, the respective kind of plus ones. You're not treating me well enough. I deserve to be treated better than this, you know, and the guys would kind of go, oh God, you know, your one's a bit much, isn't she? You know, and, and obviously with Maura, you know, in the beginning, she came in all, I mean, can you say guns blazing, you know, I think it was more than guns blazing, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But she, you know, I mean, the guys just thought she was so extra, you know, and, and they were like, oh, let's see if she's all mouth, you know. Yeah. But I, I think these, this was just some incredible stuff to be taken away from her very early appearances, you know. Like what? Because some people think, what the hell are you doing? A grown woman watching that programme with all these beautiful people <laughs> strut around in these really ridiculous swimsuits. Yeah. And what is it? Because there's this kind of talk of, no, we can learn things or it's good. Yeah. What can we learn and what did we learn? Well, I think, you know, I mean, in previous seasons, it had literally just been, you know, girls girls kind of, you know, hooking up with guys and being a bit sad when they didn't hook up with guys. And that was kind it was fairly on the level. But Maura came in and just started going, right, I want him over there and I want that one over there. And and now, I mean, she used some choice language. I don't even know if I can, you know. Are you talking about the fanny flutters? <laughs> well, I think it's Fanny flutters. Sean O'Rourke, yeah, very good. Sean O'Rourke <laughs> said it. So I think he we're did. allowed to say it. But I mean, it is actually quite an accurate description for what happens when you fancy someone. Would Absolutely. You not say? Well, there was, what was the rest of it? I mean, I wish he was eating me and stuff like oh. that. And it was like, yeah, Amora. I don't think I Sean O'Rourke totally... said that. I have to, I have to just... Ah, could you have? Oh, my God. Uh, I think we would have, uh, I think we all would have had a collective 
conniption at that. But, you know, I mean, she went in on the first and, you know, I think that's a very Irish thing that Irish women do. You know, they, they arrive into a room and they are just so like, right, I'm here. You know, and, and, and you know, not to generalise, but, you know, I think she was one of the very few, you know, the, the sort of English girls on Love Island didn't do it so much, you know. But she came in anyway and just, you know, set her set her sights on various guys. Didn't matter really that they were already coupled up. This is the, you know, the objective of the game as well, you know. So, I mean, you can talk about girl code all you like. But, you know, I think one of the big things was me and I was keeping an eye on Twitter at the same time. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, my God, this one's an awful slut, you know. And it was like, no, she happens to like sex. You know, it's not a crime. And, you know, for such a long time in Ireland, and it's still there, you know, I mean, even though we're in the year of our Lord 2019, there's still this thing that a woman who desires sex or instigates sex or initiates the chase is just an awful slapper. And I think that was a really interesting thing is that she came, like you say, all guns blazing, fanny fluttering, all that lark. (laughs) And uh, she talked about what she wanted. But then when the, when that guy, Michael, I think it was, or who, I can't remember who was. Someone will never remember his name, but we'll always remember Maura's name. Um, He tried to say that, you know, use her sexuality and use the fact that she was talking about to try and Mm. call her names or to to, to demean her, I suppose, to disrespect her. She wasn't having any of it yeah. At that point. Well, one of them said, it was Tom um, who said, look, let's see if she's all mouth, you know. And then he was like, you know what, she's a bit OTT and a bit cringe, you know. Now, I mean, I just know from personal experience, if you're a little bit sort of, you know, a, a woman who knows her own mind, there are men out there who will just want to dull your shine and they will they will recast you as this OTT cringeworthy. You're too much for me, you know, that kind of way. And that that's just a way of bringing a woman who knows herself down, you know. So that's exactly what he was doing. And she wasn't having a single solitary bar of it. Meanwhile, the nation just cheered because, you know, I mean, she was like, are you joking? (laughs) You know, she really was. And she just, she just, you know, let him have it as well, you know, and not in the way he would have wanted. an amazing thing, amazing confluence of things happened in Mm. Ireland to do with Longford. So Maura was in Love Higgins and Centre Parks was opening. (laughs) And it was like Longford was suddenly the centre of the universe. Exactly. It's kind of amazing. But going back to what you were saying about the way um, Irish women have been viewed over the years, Porgor Moran has written an amazing column. I just wanted to read a bit out of it about Maura today and it was most read on the site for most of today um, he says as I've written here before I'm talking about the time when I and my classmates were told in school that to have sex with a girl was not only to risk one's own soul but also to destroy a temple of the Holy Ghost the girl was the temple it's not an easy thing to be a temple it's also off-putting if like me you tended to take things too seriously and over the next two decades women stepped out of the temples with the assistance of television Gay Burns radio programmes and the Late Late Show the industrialization of society and the women's liberation movement. But if they stepped out of the temples, many were mauled by the old Ireland, which forced them into the adoption of their babies. Some of these women are still suffering today. When Mora kicks off on Love Island, several nations hold their breath for various reasons. For me, it's in the delight that the hard old cod and nonsense Kathleen Nahula in Ireland <laughs> is dead and buried. And when Mora struts her stuff, it's as though she's dancing on the grave of an official Ireland that denied the reality of real women ruthlessly for too long. It's brilliant, isn't it's it? It's great because, I mean, some people might think, oh, that's a bit going over top, but actually it's not. There was an Irish woman unafraid to be sexual, mm-hmm. to have desire, to be herself, to make mistakes, mm-hmm. to mess yeah. it up and say sorry, all those kind of things. And uh, everyone yeah. loved it. Yeah, she definitely, I mean, she, there was that really brilliant thing about Maura that I loved is when she did get rejected and it happened quite a bit. I mean, she was kind of, you know, popping from one guy to the next. You know, she just dusted herself off and right, right, who's next? When's, where's my next victim? And, you know, I think <laughs> Irish, young Irish women you know, have just not had 
that potent a you know invisible a, a role model in a very very long time and so Porig also says them. to say Maura is confident and assertive is to put it mildly she's <laughs> no time for the traditional Irish carry on of hiding our emotions from the prying eyes of the parish for fear of upsetting anyone I don't anyone. think she even knows what the parish is <laughs> What parish? <laughs> Honest to God. Ballyman. No, and she does know parishes. She's the pride of Ballyman Parish. <laughs> I'd say yes. she's going to have a great time now when she gets home. So I'd, I'd just love to be on a fly in the wall. I really And would. I was down in Centre Parks and her sister works oh. there. So I was trying no. to get a sight of her, but I didn't. Oh, fantastic. But, um, I know it was all They're happening. the new Kardashians, let's <laughs> be honest. Oh, well, I'd watch that programme, would you? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Okay, well, listen, on to you now. Enough mm. of Love Island, but it was great. And oh, we should mention Greg O'Shea from Limerick won. Of course. But he's a man and this is the women's podcast. So this sorry, is Greg. true, yes. But we want to be your friend well too. Done, you Greg. seem very nice. <laughs> um, you were writing this week about kind of how your body changes after childbirth. Yeah. And how, I thought it was really interesting, when you're actually pregnant, and I really related to this you're kind of delighted with your body and it's all happening and wow this is really great it's changing and you suddenly lose any a lot of that stuff that you the the hang ups and the body Mm. hang ups that you have Mm. but I suppose when the baby comes out and then you're left with all a lot of this stuff um, what are you left with well, you were you were talking about it. Tell us, tell us what you've been left with, Tanya. I mean, I was so proud because I had a bump that was like a, a cantaloupe. You know, it yeah. was so firm it was and giant. round. Oh my god! I took a picture of it the day I gave birth, and I look at it and I go, "How was I even standing upright? They'd fallen over." But you know, I gave birth, and that was fun. I remember taking a shower every woman who's given birth will talk about that first shower I mean you'll never beat it you know that kind of way but I remember taking but a you look had at a cesarean I did but I remember that first shower when after I'd had a cesarean I, I didn't really enjoy that experience oh it took I was years fit. off me really that was really amazing because I just felt so delicate like I was gonna you know I don't know right I was scared actually scared I was getting into the just the whole just moving around you know the right. very first time anyway and I suppose it. you've got other bits and bobs that you're kind of hooked up yeah, to or you're yeah. a bit like that was it probably yeah, yeah. exactly the no, morphine which I was trying to get them to keep in me forever <laughs> they, they took it away unfortunately that was a bit annoying <laughs> better living through chemistry no I love that but I remember coming home you know and I had been trying breastfeeding and all the rest of it and you know my stomach had just I remember actually looking at my stomach after the cesarean and going God I'm like one of the Kardashians now with me washboard stomach but I mean it was just but yeah and then you see I think what happened was you know the, the skin sort of got very it looked very angry there was lots of these kind of a honeycomb of red welts on my stomach I don't know if this happened it must happen to other people and, and, and stretch marks now I had been on the bio oil twice a day like it was my full time job you? didn't go near the boy. Oh, oh my terrible. God. I was, well, I just wanted to sort of keep, you know, some semblance of control over things. Forget <laughs> it. Good luck. Never <laughs> happened. But I remember just, you know, at that time as well, you know, there's so much more going on. You're sort of just in survival mode. You're eating. I mean, it's a wonder I didn't eat a toilet seat just to stay surviving. You don't care what you're putting in your mouth, really, you know. And then you just get into this sort of habit where you're eating a lot of cake, a lot of sugar, not really eating healthily, you know, because you've so much else going on. So then that became a kind of a habit, you know, and this is sort of the comfort eating became like a really huge part of the experience, you know. And at the time I was telling myself, it doesn't matter. Sure, look, I've, I've given birth, you know, I have I've created human life. You know, there's there's something there blinking in the corner because of me and my amazing body. And I think in a way, you know, that sort of ebbs off about three three months in, four months in. Yeah. A lot of that is maybe culturally imposed, I think, you know, mm. because 
you do see women who sort of, you know, pay, I hate this word, paying back, you know, there into are, shape or they whatever. Do, they do. It does happen. It, of course, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, there are so many different types of women's bodies. I actually look more pregnant now than I did when I was in my second trimester. And that's fine. You know, I don't really mind so much. Every so often I think, God, I should really do something about this, you know, because, you know, for women staying in shape, you know, for a very long time is is just something you're supposed to be doing, you know, if you're if you're adulting in any responsible way. I'm using heavy air quotes here, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I just have a different sort of priority now, you know. But that's what I loved about your column, because that's what you were saying was, you know, you, you're still sort of wearing some of the maternity gear. This is a maternity dress I'm wearing right now. Well, it's very, very pretty, I have Isn't to say. It is. I'm going to be wearing it till the And does the it really matter is the point. Like, you know, and that's the thing, this pinging back or doing something about it or whatever, you know. To me, it doesn't, Mm. you know, but I mean, I've noticed that for a lot of women, you know, they will say, oh, I'm back at my pre-body. And and I think, you know, on a lot of the forums, I've been keeping an eye on a lot of the Facebook closed groups and there's a real, and especially in summer, you know, I think that sort of thing about being beach ready is still, I mean, as much as we're lashing against it, right, you know, in the summer, it's still there, you know, and I think there's still... How do you go on those forums? I could never be on them. I just, it just drove me mad with all that chat about stuff like that. I find it just fascinating to see okay. what other women are worried about or thinking about or, you know, like, you know, and you're right, it can be very toxic and very mm. sort of confusing, you know, and it can mm. and actually really take away from your experience as a new mum. But I find it just fascinating to see what other people are, are thinking about and worried about and, and that. So I kind of keep an eye on it well, as a let's, lurker. Let's talk about a woman who pinged back. Oh um, my God, did she, she ever? <laughs> God. She did, although this one. she did have a better photo shoot outside the maternity hospital than her predecessors, I think. She sure Meghan did. Meghan Markle were talking about it, oh, as yes. if you didn't know. <laughs> um, but Meghan had her baby. And then Meghan has been out, been very busy since she had her baby because she's been editing, guest editing British Vogue. She has. So instead of putting herself on the cover, mm. Tanya, which some very photogenic and glamorous and rich and privileged people might do, she decided to put other people on the cover. She did. Including an Irish woman, Sinead Burke. Who looks absolutely She looks one of the best on it, Oh my God, she looks absolutely amazing on it. And, you know, I love that Megan does this. She's she's offering a voice. I mean, Sinead obviously has a voice within Vogue as one of their contributing editors. 15 change makers. 15 um, kind of change makers and and trendsetters and tastemakers. And and, and some of the others are, you know, Greta Thunberg, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Jacinda Ardern. I mean, all superheroes, you know. And, you know, there's something fantastic about, you know, Meghan Markle just handing over, like you say, you know, the cover to to 15 other women. And to me, it's a very powerful image. When you see the 15 of them there, you're just like, God, birds are amazing, aren't they? And she did it quite a clever thing. She left one of the spaces as a mirror so that you and I, Tanya, oh, yes. can look at ourselves on the cover of British Vogue and think what amazing think change makers we can be as well. <laughs> I should have been on there now, yeah. telling you. But, you In know, your lovely maternity frock. <laughs> <laughs> and my wealths of stretch marks, absolutely. But um, no, it's it's you know, and I mean, I think Megan is very good friends with Edward Edward Enninful, so you know, it was maybe only Who's a matter the editor of time. Yeah, for yeah, the people editor. who don't follow that, cause exactly. You know. Yes, um, so it was probably only a matter of time before she you know got to guest edit, you know, Vogue. But I think what was so interesting about this was the backlash. I mean, I think you know, I mean, I've written about this in the Times already. I mean, all Megan Markle has to do is close a door, and the next thing, the world just you know you know, we're writing think pieces about it. It's really very, I don't know how she's 
going to handle this a level of micro scrutiny for the next however many years. I I, I don't know if I can see it last. Pierce Morgan wrote a really really uh, horrible column about her actually criticizing the fact that she she edited that. It was it was quite even for his by his standards. Mm. Uh, quite bad, but there is this there is this voice out there that says, "Why is Meghan Markle getting involved in so-called political uh, things? And should she not just shut up and look pretty and, look, and walk yeah. around?" Which Kate Middleton kind of does do, really, doesn't she? I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a sense that the royals, you know, are kind of ornamental. I mean, Diana did get involved in a lot of so personal and social things, and but I suppose she was even an outlier at the time. You know, um, she was she was loved for it, but also pilloried for it. You know, and 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 opened herself up to a massive level of scrutiny, which in the end, you know, had a really awful ending. You know, well, I I admire her because Meghan Markle because she had all these principles and um, passions before she ever met Harry. Like she, she sure was did. a feminist. She was she's been you know, doing activism for, since she was a very young girl. Mm. And, uh, the, you know, she could easily just say, right now I'm really rich and I could just go off and, and not do anything and not bother. Yeah. But she isn't. So, I mean... I don't think it would be in her even nature to do something like that. I think she's, you know, hoping to use this platform and it is a considerable platform to, to kind of, you know, highlight stuff that she is passionate about. I mean, she is going... The thing about Piers Morgan as well is, I mean, it's a funny one. They appear to be kind of friends for a while. Well, you see, the f- funny thing is, as far as I know, it Piers... Well, and Pierce and Megan were slightly acquaintances. And the last time Pierce ever saw Megan was when she said, Oh, I'm going to meet Prince Harry. And he waved her off, I think, in a taxi or a car. And that was the last time he ever saw her. And he's still smarting over it, (laughs) obviously. Because I think he thought he was going to have a bit of an in there, you know. Oh, God help me. Wisely, Megan decided to delete his number (laughs) off her phone. Who dis? Totally. Like, Um, but I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he is, and they're being so, there are certain you know, pockets of the British media that are just being unbelievably needlessly eviscerating. I think there was, I saw something this week about the organic shawl she used to um, uh, carry her son around in was, you know, I think there was a report, I don't know if if it's true or not, you know, that it was made in a sweatshop or something like that. But I thought, wow, we're really at a point now where we're just really digging through the bins. It's just so, it's just so unfair, you know, and she shouldn't be expected to to endure this, really, you know. Well, I look forward to seeing photographs of Megan with Maura at some point. Oh, Maura my Higgins, God. I'm sure. I want the mirror. I want my little mirror image in there as well for that <laughs> moment, for sure. Really? Well, thank you very much, Tanya. Anything else on your radar at the moment? Any podcasts you're listening to, books you're reading? Oh, my God. What Are you just reading, reading baby books still? Oh God, no! No, I've been reading some great stuff. I read um, Fleischman is is uh, in trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner, which is being touted as the the hottest read of the summer. It is fantastic. I mean, she's got such a, a grasp on on the human condition, both the interiority of men and women, which I love. So that was fantastic. Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. I also oh, I'm reviewed dying to recently. Read that. You love it. I oh. know you will because the journalistic kind of muscle in that is just really staggering you know yeah. so. and the other one I'm really looking forward to reading over my holidays which are happening soon Tanya oh. I have to tell you I'll be away <laughs> listeners for a few weeks is Expectation by Anna Hope because that's our women's podcast book club book brilliant. so it is brilliant when I come back from my holidays Oh, I'm going for three weeks. I'm very looking forward to it. I'm so to jealous. It. Yeah. Have you got any holidays planned? I keep asking no, everyone. I might lately. make it to the Red Cow Roundabout if we're very lucky. <laughs> On that note, thank you very much, Tanya Sweeney. You're listening to the Irish Times.
Now, Dublin is playing host to a brand new festival this summer with headliners including Lily Allen and Calice. Love Sensation aims to bring the best of music and drag to the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, August 17th and 18th. Organiser Cormac Cashman, editor of Gay Community News, Lisa Connell and drag queen Victoria's Secret came into studio to speak to Cathy Sheridan all about the LGBTQ plus focused festival. They also spoke about the lesbian scene in Ireland and Irish drag queens. Cormac, tell us about Love Sensation. The name is fabulous, actually. I want to go myself. <laughs> the name is uh, it came from a tune by Loretta Holloway. It's one of, kind of the mother classics um, we play kind of. There's a few tunes we play at the end of the night, most nights we play, and that would be one of the big ones. Um, we've been running Mother for about nine years now, and we've been wanting, wanting to run a music festival for probably the last four or five years. And um, We've been running Mother Pride Block Party for the last nine years as well, and that's just been getting bigger year on year. And kind of from that, we decided we'd love to do a music festival, a big, inclusive um, event aimed at the LGBT community and their friends, um, kind of like a Pride 2, another big day in the summer, and a big party to kind of wrap up the summer. And from that kind of came the idea to run Love Sensation. How is it different, Cormac? I mean, if I went along to it as a straight person, what would I see that would that would blow my head? Or would I, would I, would I, would I be hearing different music? What, what is it about that makes it particularly attractive? Um, I think that it's an event run kind of by the LGBT community and for the community. Um, I don't know if you've been to kind of Pride or to events that the community go to. They're a very different atmosphere than would be at different parties it's kind of there's a saying that gays know how to party and it's very true um, if you come along to one you'll kind of see what it's all about it's a very inclusive atmosphere uh, musically I mean it's big pop headliners and incredible DJs so, like for example uh, so for example Lily Allen is headlining the, da- the main wow. stage um, Clean Bandit Gossip Khalees Honey Dijon is headlining the dance stage and then there's a rake of um, incredible talent from kind of local drag from Victoria who's here with us to um RuPaul's Drag Race kind of stars. So there's nothing to drag you down? Nothing at all. No, that sounds very jolly, Victoria. <laughs> well, you can get dragged up, when, you know, <laughs> strap on your lashes, nice pair of high heels. It is all grass, isn't it? I haven't checked that. It's grass, yeah. You're, you're going to have to find a pair of wellies. A nice wedge. Oh, a nice wedge. is yeah. right, Lisa. Yes. Yeah, size 11 pennies don't do them, but I'll have to find some somewhere. Victoria, so you're going to turn up in full rig? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm super excited. We've got queens coming from all over America and, as Cormac said, from all over Ireland too. And uh, it's going to be one hell of a party. It certainly is. Um, And I have to say that you and I just already had a chat this morning about eyebrows. And I was saying that, you know, the the amount of time, I think two hours that you spend getting ready... I have to paint in my eyebrows, which exasperates me every single day. (laughs) But you have to make yours disappear to start with. Yeah, I feel like everyone needs an award when they have a good eyebrow day. It's such a (laughs) challenge to make two of them look exactly the same. (laughs) And any day you do, I feel like someone needs to acknowledge it. Um, We have to make them them disappear with glue and adhesives that probably should be not going anywhere near our eyes and then paint over them two brand new brows. Now, my eyebrow history has been long and painful, and I could show you a collection of horrific eyebrows that were everything from the McDonald's arches to very skinny, almost not there existing brows. And somewhere now, I think, I think I can kind of say this, please, if anyone goes onto my Instagram and judges and go, God, they're still hideous, I think they're kind of nice now, but I'm not sure. 
And can I just point out that actually Victoria has lovely natural eyebrows, so mm. making them disappear must be quite a chore. Yeah, that's the most painful What do you bit. stick over them? Apart, what do you stick to the adhesive, if you know what I mean? So it, it, it's a spirit gum we start with, and then there's uh, some actual, like a, like, a gum of sorts that you have to, like, spatula in, and then a sealer over that, and then the heaviest foundation that you can find to paint over it. What, what sort of foundation do you uh, use? I use MAC Full Coverage, which is basically like a theatre concealer, and it's really good. Cement. Yeah. And, Jul- and then Julux paint all over. And <laughs> <laughs> do you have to have a full weather. spray tan always? <laughs> do I have to have a witch? A full spray tan. Oh, How no, I'm far work? too lazy for that. <laughs> right. like, sometimes the odd time I'll sleep in a bath of cocoa brown and then wake up the next day illuminous because I'm too lazy to wait the three hours and take it off. And Philip, as, as, uh, Victoria, as I have yeah. you here, how do you make everything else disappear? Because there's a lot of, a lot, a lot yeah, of disappearing just, has to be done, I just it? need to see exactly where your mind is at this present point. Well, but, uh, don't explore too deeply. <laughs> I'm just thinking of you in the, that amazingly shapely female right. body. Well, we wear like the equivalent of couch padding under our tights to create a shape too. Um, and that does a lot of the disappearing for you because it's all covered up, if you know what I mean. But uh, a granny panty is your best friend. I don't know if we can say that, but it makes a lot of things disappear. If you reef them up high enough, everything will. Yeah. Don't, I just tell, don't, don't tell all your secrets. I don't plan on having children after years of tucking, though. It sounds kind of painful. It's actually kind of okay. If you do it right, it's okay. Some people use tape as well and tape everything back. Uh, I've never been brave enough to put tape in that particular area of my body. So, yeah, your face alone (laughs) says that. Okay, I think we've gone far enough with that one. (laughs) And the the upper part of your body, I presume, is much simpler, is it? It's a question of... Yeah, we wear uh, corsets and uh, what I think every man should have to wear at some point is a bra because they're probably the most horrific, uncomfortable things I have ever uh, worn in my life so if everyone could strap on a bra for a day and just see how that feels and how happy and nice they are yeah and how happy we are to hear that you say that <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you, you choose your outfits yes and how do you do that I mean do you have to go abroad to very no. exotic dress places to buy those or do you have them made or how no, do you I, I, I work with like just Dublin designers on, on different things and I don't like anything that's too understated I definitely like <laughs> attention <laughs> notice that <laughs> So if there's a bright orange in the house, I'll have some of that. Um, but yeah, it's, that's part of the fun, I think, is like getting to create like cool new costumes that are really going to like, what's different? What have I not done before? And what is going to make people stop in their tracks too? And what's going to make people stop in their tracks at Love Sensation? Oh God, I have a few things planned at the moment, but uh, lots of diamonds, lots of crazy accessories are going to be thrown in there. Um, but also, now that I've heard this grass, I really need to think about what shoes I'm going to be wearing. It's going to be on grass, yeah. yes. Yes. So that means your stilettos are out. Yeah, well, I have done a festival in heels before and it was the most horrific experience ever because your heels just keep sinking into yeah. the grass. Another thing that a lot right. of men don't know about. There you go. Well, now I'm almost seven foot in drag, so maybe <laughs> sinking down an inch or two into the grass is no harm. But uh, yeah, so I need to think about wellies. And what about wigs? Do you, do you have a collection oh of wigs? Oh my God, so many wigs. Like you could get lost in my wig wardrobe. Is it like Moira Rose in Shits Creek? <laughs> have you seen Shits Creek? <laughs> I actually haven't, but no, it's way less glamorous. I have a load of hooks in a wall that they're hanging off different Like Moira Rose, over. you must watch Shits Creek. Okay, I'll she check that out. I actually heard it's brilliant. Yeah. Yes, it is. 
And how many do you have? I would say well, maybe like 40, 40 different wigs. Or like, I mean, there's maybe six of them that are currently like not needing to be washed. Again, there's so much maintenance and drag yes. between like washing, restyling wigs, fixing costumes. Uh, shoes are always getting broken. I have size 11 feet. They're not the, not the most delicate uh, drag queen in Dublin. <laughs> and at the end of it all, Victoria, mm. what is the fun of this? That sounds like a lot of hard work. Fair bit of pain. Yeah. I think I when I started, it was like 16 years ago, and nobody thought you could have a career in being a drag queen. I mean, uh, Shirley Temple Bar was on TV calling bingo twice a week. I mean, people don't give that enough credit, by the way. Ireland was so far ahead in so many ways. She was on daytime TV calling bingo in drag twice a week. <laughs> people are like, oh, all this like, drag is now mainstream. I was like, well... I mean, I don't know, I remember a gay night on RTE too when I was at home, like, switching channels quick because, like, would anyone notice I was watching it? Like, Panty was on reading, like, some prayer to Dolly Parton and everything. It was wild. What age were you then? Uh, I don't know, very young. I'm going to say very young. I'm it, still very young, in, just in, to be clear. Were you in your sort of early teens? Mm, in my early teens, yeah. And he said happily. <laughs> Already, you, were you looking at this and thinking, yeah. my God, that's what I want to do with my life? No, no. I mean, I didn't really get that I was gay for uh, like a, maybe a bit longer than I realised. I knew I was different. I knew I was different since I was like four, I would say. I remember being in school and sitting beside the boy beside me and going, there's something we're not exactly the same. I knew I was slightly different to the other kids, but it just took me a little bit longer to realise what I was feeling. And I also knew as well that I had to maybe conceal that I was different from the other kids. Whatever. I mean, I think that's quite Irish as well. We like to conceal lots of things. Um, But yeah. So watching that, I didn't look at it and go, I want to be a drag queen for sure. Even when I started drag, I was like, oh, this would be a bit of crack. I was going to an art college in Dunleary and me thinking starting in an art college was going to be the most exciting thing to be the gay person on campus. They didn't care. They were all so fluid back then in art college that I was not special in any way, even in head to toe baby blue, uh, which I did do and I regret that deeply. Um, Is is blue out the window now? Is it not your thing anymore? uh, The t-shirt said, who's your daddy? uh, It was, you know, um, baby blue when I had matching baby blue blue parachute pants. Now, anyone that does not know what a parachute pants is, it's a baggy combat with strings hanging off it all over. Oh um, I couldn't find them in a in a pair that was long enough, really, for me. So they were an inch too short as well, which was always the bane of my life. And a girl in my class stood on one of the strings and it was a very difficult day for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It wasn't fun. It wasn't. No, I made her. I made her feel my energy for the rest of the day. You did. <laughs> That's a great phrase. We must remember that. I'm going to make you feel my energy, Lisa. <laughs> Pleasure, I'm sure. Actually, it's, it's it's amazing what Victoria says there. That that about about how Ireland. We, nobody nobody blinked. Uh, at Shirley Temple Bar back then. Mm. And actually, I hadn't even thought about it until you said it now, that that was something very different. I think that was 20 years ago. Was that around... Do you remember Danny Danny LaRue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, who was a bit before that, maybe. Um, So he was a a fixture of British television. Mm -hmm. But we had our own, and I did not realise this. Mm. Lisa, we have come a long way, haven't we? Yeah, we certainly have. Or is it as long as we thought it was? In fact, was it always there and we just didn't... We just didn't give ourselves enough credit, as Victoria says. Well, I think that, yeah, it's been um, for kind of the many, many uh, LGBT folk and activists 
to have come before us. It's been a long road, of course. It would be, it's too neat and simple a narrative to say, you know, poof, and it's all, you know, um, and there's still so much to do. But yes, there is a, I think Irish people, um, I think the Shirley phenomena is that thing where I think at the time Irish people were like, sure, the media are mad. You know, there would have been just a sort of a an exceptional, you know, of course, the, the those crazy cats at RTE or whatever. So, there was, I think that's kind of how that, it was almost like hidden in plain sight, I think, a little bit. Um, but in terms of like the evolution of kind of the scene and funny, I was just talking to Cormac this morning about the LGBT community is so honoured that we are, our activism and our uh, social change and kind of uh, striving for social justice has always run alongside our need and desire to party with one another. And the fact that we would, you'd, you'd go and be marching all day and then you'd dance all evening. And there was, there's something very potent and important about that because mm-hmm. that was the, you know, that we people talk about disappearing queer spaces in the wake of kind of monstrous capitalism, which we see happening in, in lots of globalised Western countries. And that's that's a real loss because those queer spaces are still really important. I mean, if you talk to Meninia and belong to, there are 13-year-old young LGBT kids who are still having a tough time. Like Ireland, don't get me wrong, we've done amazing stuff in the last decade, even alone. But they're the importance of that uh, representation, visibility, togetherness cannot be under underestimated, I don't think. Now, Lisa, we, all, we, we often think about vulnerable young boys, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to that whole issue and coming out and revealing themselves for who they truly are. We don't give much time to lesbians, really. Is it because lesbians have been able to sort of fly under the radar? I think, I mean, I can... I can go kind of, there's a couple of answers. One is more depressing than the other. I think misogyny plays a big part in that, in that misogyny tells women that their sexuality doesn't matter, straight or gay. Um, So I think there's a sort of a minimising of uh, LGBT, well, uh, the L or the B. uh, uh, So female identified folk, uh, maybe our identities aren't taken as seriously across the board. Um, Also, I think that, particularly male-identified um, uh, queer people have just maybe had a little bit more airtime in terms of that stuff or they're more seen. Um, also, they create theoretically more of a reaction. But interestingly, the intersection of homophobia is about misogyny, right? So because what society doesn't like in gay men is their femininity. So it's a kind of a funny double, double-edged sword, right? Because uh, w- lesbian women then conversely, are not feminine. So then we're grand. It's a it's a funny one. Was that incident on the on the London bus? Did that cause a stir in Ireland? Did you did anybody recognize that as something that could happen here? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, without speaking in kind of being too general about it, um, Ireland, we have a very low incidence of of, uh, homophobic kind of, well, violent, certainly assault, Um, although I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's thankfully not super prevalent. Um, But yeah, I think what those women getting attacked in, in London was a very stark reminder of how exposed uh, LGBT people can be and feel in scenarios. And I think if you followed that story, the elements of it that were most disturbing were the start of that interaction was um, those young men 
kind of demanding a performance from the women. And I think women, uh, gay or not, can identify with that feeling of being on display, uh, kind of you're you're there to to entertain. Um, and so that that's kind of the kernel of that. And that that does mean, you know, and I think LG, all LGBT people, whether uh, male or female, we have that moment where you do check, are you OK to hold your partner's hand in that space or setting? Or am I OK to kiss uh, my girlfriend's cheek or, or indeed kiss her on the lips here? So we all do that internal checking um, because it's still not, you know, like homophobia is not dead yet, sadly. Is it, is it OK to walk down a street in Ireland? I don't just mean Dublin. In Ireland, hand in hand with your girlfriend. I think we're getting there. I think it's much, it's certainly much better. I, I, I don't know what you yeah, guys I think. think so. I remember, like, I went to Barcelona when I was 18 and there was gay couples all walking all over the city, holding hands, showing affection. That blew my mind. That was 17 years ago. I had never seen that in Ireland. Um, and then I think when marriage equality came in, there was a shift for sure. Mm. You could see all of a sudden people were being a little bit more brave. But even by saying brave it, it kind of takes away from the fact that they're just showing uh, natural affection and more so a lot of people still I think feel that by doing it they're kind of you know pushing themselves to do it because it's so built into us to maybe shy away from it and kind of hide it a little bit yeah that they're making a statement yeah <clears throat> definitely I think since marriage ref it's kind of it's changed for me that you kind of feel like the country has your back so you know that the majority of people have actually voted and are sound and are on side. So you feel like the majority of people on the street kind of have your back. So you don't really have to think about it too much. I find post marriage ref, it's, mm-hmm. I've found that you kind of just... Do you find the work you do, Cormac, uh, running these nights and, and, and um, this festival now and that sort of thing, is that, are people now, is that a much more of a natural thing to be doing in the sense of you're appealing to an audience, it's all out there, nobody's shy about coming... Or were they ever shy about it? Was it always a was it always a very protected, safe space the um, nights you ran? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess so I started running a student night about ten years ago, and we used to have quite strict policies around um, photographs in the club, and we'd have a photographer, and you'd very much check with everybody: Are you cool with these photos going online? And you'd be very careful about that. And I found now people are less worried about their photographs appearing online. Now that's a ten year gap, so that's a long time. Um, but I would have done the student nights back then. Definitely, there would have been a lot of like, "Oh, I'm not out of the closet. I'm, you know, I'm from wherever, and I don't want photographs of me being in this venue online." I found mm-hmm. that's essentially gone. I haven't had that request in a very long time. So that's yeah. one small example. You yeah, still have that. Literally, just two months ago, a, a, a girl said that she needed the photo removed because she wasn't out, uh, out to her parents and that they wouldn't react very well. So. Mm. Well, so, still, I think yeah. it's still a good bit less than it was. Anyway, I remember mm-hmm. it used to be almost a weekly request for us, right. kind of delete that or could you not take my picture here that kind of thing mm. so it definitely still does happen but um, Cormac you were quite the pioneer weren't you I mean you were the one who noticed that that straight people had their cheap beer nights and all that sort of thing but you decided why why shouldn't that why shouldn't um, the gay community have their cheap I don't know if, night. if noticing that Irish people wanted a drink was pioneering but uh, yes <laughs> but I mean you choose your company <laughs> friends of mine were running kind of student nights for uh, the straight crowd and I just didn't understand why there wasn't a cheap drink student offering on the market so yeah we started one 
Um, has it made you rich? It hasn't. Spotting no. this niche. <laughs> <in the market>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's made me comfortable. Um, I wouldn't say rich. No, I keep spending it. <laughs> that is shocking. Yeah, yeah we that's, keep that's, spending that's it on, on, bigger, on bigger parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Festivals are incredibly expensive to run. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, we all watched Fire Festival. Oh, oh my God. God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah well done. Lisa, just tell us one last thing. In terms of your work as, as, as editing Gay Community News, have the issues changed? How long have you been, how long have you been doing that job now? So um, I've worked for GCN for a decade, um, and which is great because I get to go to my dream job every day. Um, but more recently, I only took over as managing editor um, at the start of this year, which is, re- again, dream dream job scenario. Um, I think we... Yeah, it's it's ever changing. I mean, like yourself, you know, like you you know, media is reflecting back what's happening all the time, and GCN was started as a because mainstream media didn't care and wouldn't cover LGBT issues. So in 1988, Tony Walsh and Catherine Glendon said, "Well, fuck that. We're gonna we need to start seeing ourselves." And it was also a beacon, a flare to tell other LGBT folk because you know I. I was very small at the time, so can't speak to it. But being LGBT in Ireland, even Dublin uh, in 1988, is a very, very different reality. It was very scary, very uh, much more hidden. And there was a homophobia was kind of endorsed and supported. And um, so it started uh, as, as a way for the community to see one another. And still, actually, now that's that's one of our primary functions. We are the kind of paper of record for LGBT people in Ireland, um, and yeah, we we talk about ourselves, for ourselves, and to ourselves, um, and so it it reflects in any given month kind of what's going on and what concerns LGBT people have, uh, what we don't agree on, what we do agree on whose music we're listening to. It's really fun. It's uh, and, and also, the for me, um, the activist part, uh, getting involved in other campaigns that we intersect with. So uh, obviously uh, the LGBT community were huge supporters of repealing the eighth and the reproductive health care movement. We're now very concerned about the climate because that's something we all need to care about. Um, and also uh, one thing I care about very passionately about is trying to bring attention to the hideous system of uh, direct provision that we have in the country. So really just keeping keeping those uh, issues on the table um, and, and keeping the community informed about them. Right. Um, Cormac, tell us about Love Sensation. When is it? Where is it? How much uh, is it going to cost? It's in the Royal what Hospital Calmainham on the uh, year one. I don't think we'll make any profit on year one. Uh, it's the 17th and 18th of August. It's in the Royal Hospital Calmainham. Um, and it is, uh, I think, 65 for a day ticket and 110 for a weekend ticket. Because there's no camping there. so No, absolutely not. Yeah, that so would that, be a terrible is, idea. It, no, it <laughs> camping at a gay festival in city centre Dublin. <laughs> Pass. Um, so it's a, is it a, a two-day festival? Two-day festival, yeah, yeah, Saturday and Sunday. And it's going to sort of mark bookend the end of a of a great uh, summer. Actually, uh, yeah, pride, a brilliant summer. It? It'll be a, it was a brilliant pride, and it'll kind of be the party that ends the summer. Is the hope the big the big finale for the summer? One more pride. Well, anybody who walked even briefly in the Pride March, I will never forget it. I must say, it was one of the jolliest few moments of my life. Oh, it was brilliant. It was so big this year. 
It Huge. was fantastic mm. and, and went on. Everywhere you walked in the city, there was music mm. and dancing oh, and euphoric. joy and glitter on over bars. And <laughs> 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 We're still washing it off. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for coming in, Lisa, Victoria and Cormac. Good luck thank with the you. festival. Cheers. Thank you. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Anna Sorokin pulled the wool over the eyes of New York's elite, posing as a wealthy German heiress called Anna Delvey with plans to set up an arts foundation in her name. But her luck ran out and earlier this year she was convicted of defrauding banks and hotels to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars. Rachel Deloche Williams was befriended by Delvey during that time and was a key witness at her recent trial. Here she is speaking to Jennifer Ryan about her book... My friend Anna. Therefore, defendants are serving all, all told a minimum of four years incarceration, a maximum of 12 years incarceration. Just over three months ago, Anna Sorokin, better known in New York's elite circles as Anna Delvey, was convicted of defrauding banks and high end hotels of up to a quarter of a million dollars and trying to lie her way into securing a $22 million loan from a hedge fund. The story of the fake heiress who conned Manhattan is a tale of wealth, greed, ambition and hubris. Rachel Deloach-Williams, you were Anna's friend for a time. For anyone listening who might not know who she is, can you describe her first of all? Sure. Um, first, thank you for having me. Uh, Anna Anna was, when I first met her, young, um, ambitious. She was very clever um, and fun-loving, spontaneous. And very much just like, you know, other people that you would meet in New York who come from all different backgrounds uh, into this small, well, not not small city, but into this this uh, compact space. <laughs> I suppose um, as an Irish person and uh, you're probably you're speaking to a predominantly Irish audience, that life in New York. Can you describe that in a little bit more detail? Because it's certainly from reading your book, it's it sounds quite decadent and it's it's it, it's almost like something out of a TV show. Sure. And I think there there is truth to that. I think that's what um, draws people to that life, you know, working in magazines or fashion, um, all, all the industries that Manhattan is known for. But I think what happens behind the scenes, sort of behind the curtain, is this kind of um, this this hard work ethic and sort of scrappiness that young professionals in that city have to have. You work really long hours. You often aren't paid very much. You know, I was living paycheck to paycheck, but you are in this um, traditionally wealthy industry where you you see all these people around you that um, may have more money than you or less money than you. It's just this real hodgepodge of different financial and, um, you know, just even cultural backgrounds and everybody just comes together in this space. And drinks cocktails and eats in delicious <laughs> restaurants and parties. It's kind of like a work hard, play hard situation. Yes, I would, I would say that's true. I also think in New York, um, most of what you do socially when you see your friends is go out for dinner or drinks because most people work long hours in offices and that's kind of the free time you have available. It would be in the evenings. Um, so I, I do think that tends to be more of a social focus than it would be probably living in other places. Um, and and yes, there are plenty of, of nice cocktail establishments mm-hmm. and bars and restaurants in Manhattan, that's for sure. 
And what was your life like in New York at that time? You mentioned you were living paycheck to paycheck and working in the in the fashion industry. And that life that you were leading, how did it lead you to first meet Anna? Yeah, um, I was six years into my job as a photo editor for Vanity Fair, which was really my dream job. I had wanted to work there since I was in college and I was lucky enough when I moved to the city in 2010 to get my job within a few months of arriving to Manhattan. And so I was, I, it's funny, I think in hindsight, there's a misconception that Anna was my ticket out or something, but she was very much just like um, many of the other friends I've made while living in Manhattan, just somebody I met one night out with other friends. Um, and and I, I enjoyed her company and, and she was a close friend for a period of time, but my life was really great when I met her. Um, I produced photo shoots for Vanity Fair, putting together all of the travel and logistics and, you know, booking stylists and hair and makeup. And, and I got to travel a lot. And I really loved that job. And it, it required me to work very hard. But I, I was so happy because I felt like it challenged me and I learned so much from it. Well, yeah, you, ha- you, you worked really hard and you can, you can definitely tell that from the book. But it was quite a glamorous life. You know, I know you were doing all the, the hard work in the background, but before she came and sprinkled whatever dust she did into your life, <laughs> it, you, there was a healthy sprinkling over there already. Yes, yes, I would I would agree with that. Um, even though I was most often like on the floor cleaning up the catering, the room I was in was certainly very glamorous. That's true. <laughs> As I've mentioned, you've written a book about your relationship with Anna. It's called My Friend Anna. And I have to say, oh, my God, the opening chapter is an unbelievably stressful read. And if you don't already know where the story is going to go, it gives you a really good sense that this is not going to end very well. And the, the setting yeah. for the opening chapter is Marrakesh. How did you end up there and what happened while you were there? Oh, dear. Um, well, I ended up there because so I had known Anna for, I'd say, a summer, not very well in 2016. She left to reset her visa because she wasn't a U.S. citizen, returned in 2017. And for the months that followed after her return, she reached out to me constantly, texted me. And we we built up this friendship over the course of, I'd say, just, a, just over two months where I saw her almost every day because she, she was living in a hotel that was on my walk to and from work. And I was in this transitional period of my life, just coming out of a, a relationship. And a lot of my friends were getting married or moving or having kids. And I was newly single and wanting to go out. And here was this spontaneous friend who <clears throat> I enjoyed spending time with. Long story short, she invited me on a trip to Marrakesh because she again needed to reset her visa. And she framed it as sort of a business expense for her because she wanted to create a documentary about the start of this art foundation that she was working on and that she'd been working on as long as I'd known her. And she wanted to see what it was like to have someone around with a camera. And this might be the beginning of the footage for this documentary. Anna was very convincing. And she said she wanted to book this private villa um, at La Mamunia, which is a, an extremely decadent resort, unlike anything I had ever been to, that's for sure. I had a, we stayed in a villa with a butler and a private pool. And she, she she booked it a week after saying she wanted to go away and then invited a videographer and a personal trainer and me and... We go. We go to Marrakesh. I know it all sounds like an amazing fairy tale sort of holiday. Yeah. But you ended up having to use your credit card in right. a situation where you were you were led to believe that this was all taken care of, but you ended up with a massive bill. Yes. So it snowballed. Um, I, I've now read books about how con artists work, and this 
this does feel ring true to that where it would it's it started with one small ask which um Anna was very talented at sort of creating this false sense of urgency and I think when people act out of urgency you don't always think rationally but on the day we were supposed to leave the tickets hadn't been booked and she had she had told me that she was stuck in meetings and asked for my help and when she gave me her card to book the tickets it didn't go through so I ended up using mine and then once she owed me money for that we got to Marrakesh and her card wasn't working outside of the the hotel when she wanted to buy these dresses she was like since I already owe you money can we just add this to that? So it was one more thing and one more thing, one small ask. And then it just keeps sort of piling up in a way that made me, I think, um, uh, like a little bit numb to how big the pile was growing. And then the real, the real problem, which of course I wasn't numb to, which was made me extremely panicked at the time was that midway through the trip, it became clear Anna's credit card that was on file with the hotel wasn't working. And there was an increasing tension between Anna and the managers of the hotel. And on my last full day in Marrakesh, these two managers appeared in our, our private lodgings and refused to leave without a functioning credit card. And Anna asked me to use mine temporarily it was supposed to be for the hold that the the hotel should have had before we arrived, the the temporary block, as they phrased it. And I believed that Anna was going to settle the bill when she checked out. I was leaving before her. Of course, that didn't happen. I left Marrakesh. And when I landed, um, I continued to France for a work trip. When I landed, I got a text from Anna saying that the full bill was going on my cards. And she would wire me $70,000 the following week to make sure everything was covered which was, yes, that was an enormous amount of money. And it was more than I made in a year at the time. And she did, she didn't wire you that money. And I think it's safe to say that this was the moment that the Mm. the veil had been lifted. Your friendship with Anna, I think, was coming to an end very rapidly at this stage. And as I mentioned in the intro, she's since been convicted of fraud. But that money you gave her, you gave evidence in that trial. But have you got any of that money that she owes you back? Um, Yes, I have. I got, well, not from Anna. Um, mm. I, I spent the, the months that followed really trying to find logic in this nonsense. She didn't just disappear. She stayed in touch with me, stayed in touch with me every day with, with information about these wire transfers that weren't ever going to arrive. Patient numbers, lies about checks on and on and on. And ultimately I, um, as you said, did testify in court. And after, you know, I think it was like two years later, um, American Express did end up protecting me from the hotel charges, which which was an enormous relief, enormous. And I had taken some loans from family, friends and friends as well that I was able to repay by writing the book. But that wasn't necessarily my motivation in writing the book. I really started writing as a catharsis and felt it was important to put my story out there to help people understand how this happens. And the, the, those those attempts to get your money back from Anna make for really difficult reading in the book, I have to say. The text message exchanges you've included in it, they're, again, a very stressful read. And that's something yeah. I found w- with quite a lot of the book, the credit card bills, the tabs you picked up when her cards didn't work or whatever, the absolute panic of those messages. How did you cope mentally at the time? At the time, um, I, I would say... I barely coped. You know, you don't know what you're capable of until you have to do it. I just, it took everything I had to kind of get through that period and to keep looking for a way forward. I wasn't sleeping. I was waking up and, you know, having panic attacks. I was still keeping up my my day job, which in hindsight is, I, I don't know how I did it. I, I confided in people who were close to me as I needed to, but I, I guess partially 
in some odd way, I think my job as a photo producer was weird training for this. It was a skill set that translated into this extreme situation where I was very good at um, sort of managing stress and when you hit a wall looking for a solution. So I just kept looking for the next way forward, the next way forward, trying to get information from this person who was at heart just a liar. Um, So then I started seeking, you know, alternate resolutions by going to lawyers and the police and then eventually the, the district attorney's office. And before all this happened, you enjoyed some good times with Anna living that high life in New York. And I want to read something from the book here. You say the world was charmed when she was around. The normal rules didn't seem to apply. Her lifestyle was full of convenience and its easy materialism was seductive. Can you give me Mm -hmm. an example of what a day hanging out with Anna Delvey, as uh, you knew her by then, was like? Yeah, um, Anna lived in a, this nice hotel in Soho, um, and there was a very nice restaurant on the ground floor called the Cuckoo, where we would often eat, and a, a sort of living room area on the second floor of her hotel, where we would often just sort of hang around and maybe drink a glass of wine or have um, some snacks. So our day typically consisted of <clears throat> going to a personal trainer, which Anna had booked she she wanted to take these private training sessions with this woman named Casey Duke, who was a, I've heard her described as a celebrity personal trainer. And this is something Anna was doing, invited me to join and said it'd be more fun if she had a friend along for it. And of course, I was happy to join her. I loved that. I, you know, I'd canceled my gym membership to save money. Um, so we would do that. I would go to work. And then oftentimes when I was at work, she would text me to see what I was doing after work. And I would swing by to to see her for a drink or sometimes go to dinner. Um, and we also liked to go to this um, infrared sauna, which was not a spa like you might imagine with, you know, masseuses and all of these things. It was kind of in the it, it was um, it was on the bottom of the sort of hippie st- store in the East Village that sells sage and Palo Santo and you know, holistic medicine type of things. And is in the basement and this little you know, they have these individual rooms and there's just this wooden booth that has infrared heat that's supposed to be good for your skin. We, we enjoyed doing that. But this period of time with Anna in my life was over the course of, uh, I think it was, like I said, just over two months, you know, a, a span of weeks. Um, and then what happened after that took over the next two years of my life in a very negative way. Yeah, which is quite amazing, really, to think it was just this intense period um, yeah. And and it led to, as as you said, two years of a, a lot of pain and a lot of controversy. And I, I you know, a, a less charitable person might read your account of relationship with Anna and say, oh, you did pretty well while the party lasted and perhaps turned yeah. a blind eye when it suited you. Now, what do, what do you say to people who, who, who say that? I think there's a funny thing that's happening in hindsight where people want to see Anna as this girl that was out on the town and all the best restaurants and all the best parties. But it's actually the opposite. You know, I I had this wonderful job. And when I knew Anna, I was pretty sure that I was her only friend. She was spending time with me and the people that worked in her hotel. And although her her plans for this art foundation were really ambitious and impressive, and I I, I certainly appreciated her confidence in telling me about them, I I really felt like she was more interested in, in my world than I was in hers. And it wasn't really this like seductive environment that I didn't have access to without her. You know, just because I, I was living paycheck to paycheck doesn't mean I wasn't eating out with my friends or, or doing these things. 
I was really in Anna's orbit because I liked Anna as a person. I really did like her. Um, and in some ways, I kind of felt like she was playing to my big sister impulse. She would ask for my advice about things or I want my help in picking out makeup, um, small things like that. It, it really wasn't as though I was there because of these you know, decadent things. We, we mostly ate in the same restaurant all the time, which isn't something I would have picked out to do um, had I had I uh, asserted more more uh, of an opinion, I guess, about those things. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with this story um, because it wasn't just a, a big news story in New York. We all read over here the account in The Cut and followed the trial and everything. And I don't want to give too much away about the book at the same time, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, you know, Anna was arrested, tried and convicted mm-hmm. of defrauding banks and hotels, and she's currently in prison. The day she was arrested, what was that like for you? Um, it was surreal. I guess when the day she was arrested, I at first I wasn't even convinced it had really happened. I think because I had I had had this back and forth and this this dread for so long that to hear that she had been arrested, I kind of it was suddenly this weird silence, like the end of this strange experience, and I, I didn't believe that she wasn't going to slip right out of the car and suddenly be on the, on the go again. Um, but once I did accept that it was it had happened, it, it did give me a degree of closure. Um, although I was still grappling with this this immense financial and emotional um, burden that I was still having to navigate at that point in time. And what has the fallout from this whole thing been for you, both personally and professionally? What's the impact? Well, so much of my life has changed over the last couple of years. And, and if you look on paper and you think, well, you've come out of it pretty well, it's it's not because of Anna. It's because I had to put in so much hard work just to one get through um, that period of time where I was figuring out what was happening, and then to pick myself up from there and to to figure out how to move forward. Which you know for me was a lot about writing as a healing process and finishing the book and and sort of finding a way to turn such a negative thing into a positive outcome. Um, and, and the takeaways for me in terms of personal growth. I really feel like I've, I've found my voice through this process. I think part of how this happened is I was uh, a bit of a pushover when I was friends with Anna. I kind of let her call the shots. I let her call the shots and um, I, you know, I didn't stand up for myself in the way that I probably would today, uh, you know, every step of the way learning, you know, how the judicial system works and then standing up in court and then writing the book and putting myself out there in this way that makes me feel much braver than I would have considered myself before this. And then in terms of trusting other people, I think I'm much more aware of myself as a trusting person. And knowing that I can sort of monitor, you know, am I making excuses for this person again and again? And, and they're actually showing me who they are. And it's it's not someone I should be spending time with. I, I think I should just I look at relationships differently today. Mm. Um, I know yeah. Anna, Anna is supposedly writing her own account of what happened. Do you expect it to differ from your narrative or do you think that she will actually do that? Um, one can't say. I, I have no idea. I, mm. I, I would be very impressed if Anna actually did find the um, the drive and, and the focus to finish mm. a book. I wish her well. I don't I don't expect it will, you know, I don't expect it will contain a lot of truth. Um, I, I, I think most of the things in Anna's life are self-serving and I wouldn't expect the book to be any different. Finally, I understand Lena Dunham is making a TV show for HBO based on your book. Can you tell us anything about it and will you be involved in any way yourself? Sure. Um, I'm thrilled that she is working on, on an adaptation of the story. I do expect to be involved and I look forward to having more 
more news on that front to announce as soon as I, I hear them myself. <laughs> okay, top secret as as, as yet. T- television and, and film, it's a new world to me too. So I've learned a lot in the process. Well done on the book and on as you. as you said yourself, making something positive out of something so negative. Well done to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking with you. And that's it for today. Thanks to all our guests, Tanya Sweeney, Cormac Cashman, Lisa Connell, Victoria Secret and Rachel Deloche-Williams. And just a reminder that Love Sensation is happening at Royal Hospital Kilmainham in Dublin on August 17th and 18th. And also remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. And if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 